If, if you guys had to say, or, or let, let me put it this way, every time that you hear the word Reformation or you begin to think about it, what are the first couple things, two, three things that come to your mind? Pastor Brian, can I start with you? When you think about the Reformation, what comes to your mind? Yeah, the first two things that always come to my mind when I think about or hear about the Reformation are the people and the doctrines, uh, really divided in those two categories. The people, immediately when I hear the word Reformation, I think of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, and those men who were really champions, but they were also, like every one of us, men with feet of clay. They had their own problems, their own weaknesses, etc., but were greatly used by God. And then I think about the doctrines, of course, the five solas, which you're probably all familiar with, but sola scriptura, sola fide, etc. So by grace alone, through faith alone. So if I break it down, those are the first two things, the people of the Reformation and the, and the doctrines of the Reformation. Gail, how about you? What comes to mind when you hear the word Reformation? It was always interesting for that word to come up in uh, uh, school occasionally. As most of you know, I went to, I did my PhD at Marquette University, which is a Catholic school. And one of the Catholic criticisms of the Reformation is how could Luther possibly uh, stand as an individual and defy church authority? Uh, isn't that a, a defiance of, of the very nature of Scripture itself? So it seemed as though Luther contradicted himself in that. And my response was, was always, well, I, I tend to look at it more as a testimony to the sovereignty of God of fulfilling Matthew 16, uh, where Jesus says, I will build my church. Uh, and interestingly enough, that's exactly what I see happening within Protestantism, is that the church is being built. With Luther, true church was recovered in a, a very real sense. Mm. And, and I, I don't see him as an individual. I see him as uh, really an opportunity for now, today, of course, uh, us to be church as well. Uh, they weren't church before that. They were an organized uh, <laughs> militia of sorts, uh, theological militia. Mm. Uh, but now, with Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, who stood on the shoulders, of course, of guys like Huss and Wycliffe and, and others, uh, we have opportunity to really be church. Mm. Gail, um, in your estimation, what was the greatest achievement of the Reformation? The solas have to be the, the greatest achievement, I think, of the Reformation, uh, especially grace alone, which was flying directly in the face of indulgences and of the Catholic authority uh, over the church. It's, it's by grace alone. It's not by the authority of, of a, a bishop or a priest that you're made Christian. Uh, it's not by the authority of the, the church that grace is meted out. No, it's by grace that comes from God and that is enacted in the heart of the believer. That, that to me, I, I never grow weary of thinking of that, of meditating on that, of teaching that, because we cannot emphasize that enough. Hmm. Pastor Brent, would you add anything to the, the greatest achievement of the Reformation? Um, you know, I'd put two thoughts down, depending on which one Gail stole, I would take the other one. So he took that one, so I'll take the other one. It's the other side of the coin, and that is the uh, a sola scriptura. Uh, so you could go with either one. In other words, for me, the, the greatest achievement was the fact that it, the Reformation tried to force people back to what is our authority. 
Is it scripture? Is it the word of God? Or is it the teachings of men, the teachings of the church, tradition, etc.? So again, you could, you could go with either one, but, but uh, either the sola uh, fide or by grace through faith alone or sola scriptura. Those, those are two sides of the same coin. Gail, were you going to add something? No. No. Um, kind of bridging now from history, what are the things that come to your mind about the Reformation? What was the greatest achievement? Brian, if there was one thing that the contemporary church should learn from the Reformation, what would it be? And if, if you don't mind, when I say contemporary church, since our context is America, our context is evangelicalism, and we are in the conservative side of that, um, I guess that's, kind, that's more what I'm referring to, the contemporary church um, um, as we are part of it. What, what could we learn? If you could say one thing, what should we learn from the Reformation? Uh, I think I would say that uh, what is isn't necessarily what should be. And, of course, that's what was going on in the Reformation. What was at the time, uh, Catholicism, the church, as Gail said it so well, stretching it to call it a church. It was an organization. It was uh, an entity. But uh, so people, you know, this is what was so radical, really, for Luther is that this just is what was. Nobody even stopped to think about, is this right? Is this what should be? So we're all, you know, you've probably all in here heard the illustration of the frog that's put in the pan of water and it's heated so slowly it doesn't even realize it's boiling to death until it's too late. Well, that's just all of us. We, we, we're, what we are in is what we assume is right. So to think outside that box or to try to realize that what is isn't necessarily what should be uh, is a challenge for us. It's hard for us to go be or think outside of that. So, but I think that's really maybe the greatest um, or, or one thing the contemporary church should learn is that we should always be assessing and evaluating to see how much, how much are we products of our own culture. Hmm. Gail, the, the one thing that you think that the contemporary church should take away? I'm going to jump on something that Brian said a little bit and build on it because I think he's exactly right that we we don't often assess where we're at uh, and where we've come from. Um, oftentimes people see the Enlightenment period, which was the period immediately following Reformation, as a period in which, or a period which is marked typically by a rejection of authority. And it seems as though uh, it may be better to describe the Enlightenment of a tr as a transfer of authority. Um, with Galileo, it seemed as though the church was rejected by modern science. And, and I don't know that that's completely accurate because really there was still an authority that existed. Mm. Uh, and that authority was the autonomous reason of the individual. And uh, how much, this is just a question, how much do we still operate under that authority? Uh, it seems as though uh, to a, a great extent. Um, postmodernism is really not a rejection of modernism. It's simply the full flower of modernism. If modernism said that our authority is individual reason, uh, the presumption that they operated under that made that work is that everyone's going to reason the same. Of course, postmodernism simply says it doesn't matter if we all reason the same. We can all reason differently, and that's okay. We can have contradiction, and that has even become a virtue, really, of postmodernism. But the authority is still the same. My reason and my 
really indulgence of myself. Uh, and so using uh, what Brian said, I think one of the things that, that the church should constantly be evaluating is really who is our authority? Mm -hmm. Where is our authority located? And, and I, I was just thinking about this this morning uh, where Paul instructs Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 6 and following. He says, in pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for own, you know the rest of the passage. Um, we live in a day and age where doctrine is suspect. Mm -hmm. Doctrine is often rejected in favor of, typically, more typically at least, experience. Some kind of, of an experience, some kind of an existential reality. It's, it's well, what does this do for me? And mm -hmm. I, I'm drawn back to the words of Paul to Timothy. Stay nourished, stay grounded in sound doctrine because that was really what happened in the Reformation. Luther rediscovered, maybe discovered for the first time, for himself at least, uh, what is sound doctrine about uh, justification, about salvation. And for us, I think we would do well to repeat that lesson, stand firm on sound doctrine. Similar question. <clears throat> By the way, I can't believe that you got all that from the Reformation, that question. What can we take away? You're the only one here who would have answered it like that. I love it. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Going to postmodernism. <clears throat> if there's one thing that the contemporary, that contemporary Christians, us as individual Christians, that we could learn from the people, the reformers, not the Reformation, the movement, but from the people, Pastor Brian, what would it be? I think that uh, maybe the key lesson that we need to learn is that there is often a price for standing for the truth and that we need to realize that often the price that we pay for standing for the truth um, doesn't always or mainly come from the world. That's, a, I think, a common misconception. Jesus warned, you know, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And we tend to think that's the world. But look at where Jesus was attacked most or by whom it was religious it was the religious uh people uh religious entity and even the apostles it was often the the jews the jews dogged the heels of paul throughout the book of acts tracking him down everywhere he went now sometimes he got in trouble with the romans but the point is this that uh, i know for me personally through the years uh trying to take a stand for truth i get more pushback from religion than i ever get from the world hmm. The community just usually laughs it off, like you guys are so, you're just silly, you know, you're, but religion often is where the pushback comes. Now, we need to be careful of that and not try to be, you know, be uh, argumentative and just picking fights, but you just try to stand for the truth, and it's often churches, denominations, religious leaders that are going to uh, push back, and so there's, there's a price for standing for the truth, and that's what the reformers teach us. Gail? I have a quote on the weight room wall that, that I'll paraphrase it. Basically says, in your lifetime, you may only get a few opportunities to do things for the Lord, maybe even just one. And what you do will depend basically on who you are. Uh, and I, when I think of Martin Luther, 
I, I don't think so much of his sermons. I, I think of how he responded to one of his friends when, when he had uh, a busy day ahead of him. Uh, one of his friends told him, Martin, you, you have such a full schedule. You don't have time to do your normal routine. His normal routine was to pray for usually two hours in the morning, beginning of every day. He would just spend that time in prayer. And he said, you don't have the kind of time. Uh, you have such a busy schedule. We need to get going, basically. And Martin's response was, no, I have such a busy schedule. I need to pray for three hours this morning. What you do is often a product of who you are. Mm. Uh, I, I, that's a wonderful personal lesson, at least, for mm. me from Luther himself. So much of the Reformation was uh, centered around one doctrine. I mean, there are, there are many. But for Luther, it was the doctrine of justification. Um, Gail, could you just, I mean, we're all Bible college students. I think we could all more or less um, uh, say what the Bible says about justification. But could you just summarize what the doctrine of justification is for us? And, and I'm going to give you John Piper's definition, not N.T. Wright's definition, uh, for those of you who are in uh, <laughs> humanity, sin, salvation class. Um, Piper's definition is that justification is a legal issue. In other words, it is an issue of being declared righteous, not made righteous. Uh, we are declared righteous, which as a consequence results in being made righteous. But justification, that, that issue is sanctification. Justification is the issue of being declared righteous. And how we are declared righteous is not on the basis of anything that we have or anything that we have done, but rather is it, a tr it is a transference, uh, the great exchange, uh, Luther called it, of my sin given to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, uh, that we may, may become the righteousness of Christ in him. Uh, and, and my sin given to Christ and Christ's righteousness given to me. Uh, that legal transfer of righteousness is what it takes to be justified before God. Anybody else want to just like, stand up and applaud that <laughs> definition? Um, Pastor Brian, Martin Luther believed that that doctrine, what Gail just defined, was the article of faith on which the church either stood or would fall. Why do you think that he believed that justification by faith alone was so important? Because uh, Jesus said, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In other words, if you get everything else right in life, but you get that wrong, what, what does it really matter? And we can even say that theologically. You know, we, we can have other, th we all, everyone in this room hopefully have enough humility to, to acknowledge that we have areas in our doctrine and theology, even though we work at, which aren't right. We don't know where they're at or we change them, but we, so we can get other things wrong. You know, your timing, your view on the timing of the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, you know, you can have that wrong, but the doctrine of justification, you can't have wrong. You can't, you, you miss that one, you get that one wrong, you spend eternity in hell. It's that simple. So, yes, Luther was absolutely right. It is the, the article of faith on which the church will stand or fall because if you don't understand justification or salvation, then all other doctrines are, in a sense, irrelevant. Hmm. <clears throat> to either of you, I, I didn't have this in our questions here, 
But just something that arises in my mind that I'm sure, I'd be really, really surprised if no one else in the room would think this. But oftentimes, when at a school like NBC or a church like Grace, um, uh, where doctrine is emphasized, and, and we come out of, these, out of NBC loving doctrine, wanting to know it, is there a danger in thinking that it is doctrine that saves? As you were saying that, Pastor Brandon, I was thinking, well, I, if, if I were skeptical about what you were saying, I would think it sounds like doctrine saves or something like that. Did, did I, would either of you comment on that? Well, um, yeah, that's right. So, it's true. So, um, certainly there is a danger. First uh, Corinthians 8 1, it's not exactly what you're referring to, but Paul warned you know, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. So, he was there warning about being so enamored with knowledge that you forget the other things, such as love in that case, or in this case, regarding your question, being so. Uh, fixated on knowledge that you forget about uh, uh, heart transformation, let's say, or whatever term you want to use. I mean, probably most of you heard the, have heard the saying. It's a, sort of a little quip, but it, there's a lot of truth in it. You can miss heaven by 18 inches, the difference between your head and your heart. Um, and what that saying is trying to communicate is the idea you can know all the facts. Um, just this morning, I was doing translation with a couple guys. I try to do that every week, Hebrew and Greek. And and the verse I happen to translate because we're going through James is James 2.19. Uh, you believe there is one God or you believe God is one, good for you. The demons believe and tremble. So in other words, intellectual assent to facts doesn't save. But if you don't have the right facts, you can't be saved. So there's a, there's a balance there. So absolutely, there is the danger that if you're just so concerned about having the right facts but not embracing them, uh, not that's why the Reformers, interestingly, they use three terms, and they use the Latin terms, fiducia and notitia, et cetera, but they use three terms to describe what is genuine saving faith. And the three Latin terms that they used were basically that genuine saving faith involves facts, notitia, knowledge. You've got to have the right truth, but then also the, the, there has to be, um, you know, repentance attached to it. In other words, something that smite your heart, for lack of a better term, that you are convicted of your sin and you see the need for justification. But even that's not enough. But they also talked about fiducia, which is some kind of volitional commitment or embracing of the truth. And so they, more than anyone else, wrestle with this. So it's no wonder they came up with those three things from Scripture to describe what true saving faith is. But the point is, it is not merely intellectual sent facts. Mm -hmm. Gail, anything to add to that? Okay. The, the Roman Catholic Church um, had distorted the gospel by adding sacraments and good works um, to the requirements for salvation, um, such that it, the, the gospel, the true gospel, is no longer knowable within theology, uh, their theology. What ways now do you think the contemporary church in America has distorted the gospel or maybe is distorting the gospel? Gail, can I start with you? How long do we have on this question? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> there are many ways in which the church has distorted or, or is distorting the gospel. It, it, and we, we could speak broadly and include uh, doctrinal issues, but, but I just want to speak to one, and I'll, I'll keep it short, um, that in the last oh, few decades, really, uh, the gospel has been seen primarily as therapy, uh, that, that 
if you believe, it will solve many of your problems. Um, and we have, have made that the message of the gospel. Mm. Uh, by we, I mean a lot of us in, in evangelical churches. Uh, that if you want to have peace, you want to have happiness, uh, it's kind of the, the seeker-sensitive understanding of the gospel, then just believe in Christ and all things will get better. Uh, he can heal you from all your ills. And is there some truth to that? By all means, yes. Uh, and I'm not denying that. Unfortunately, we have made that the message, that we, we believe the gospel in order to fix something about ourselves. Uh, whereas I'm reminded uh, that in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, uh, Jesus says, Lord, uh, that's a bit of a different way of understanding gospel. Jesus is Lord. Uh, I'm not. Uh, and that, that gospel doesn't center around my existence. It's not an anthropocentric gospel. It's a Jesus-centered gospel, a uh, Christocentric gospel. has to be. And, and I think we've, in our contemporary church, we've clouded that issue considerably. Pastor Brian. I, I mean, I, you gave us the questions a few, a few minutes ago, and so I was jotting them down just before we started. And so on this question, I said, making it about felt needs, meism, self-esteem, et cetera. So exactly what Gail said. So. Um, it seemed that in Catholic theology, there's this, not only Catholic theology, but also in the cults and also in, in other world religions, there's this strong desire, this strong impulse to contribute something to our salvation. It can't be something that we just receive. We have to contribute something, something. Um, how does that impulse to try to contribute to our salvation through our own efforts still affect the church today? Go ahead, Gail. Sure. Yeah. It, uh, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know how we would understand it. Perhaps it's the the last of the triad in 1 John 2, 15 and, and 16. The, uh, uh, you guys recall the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, the temptation being uh, that I really am that good. Uh, I really do have a certain amount of ability, or I, I really I have something to contribute. Uh, it, it seems to be the appeal, I would argue, in Mormonism, because Mormonism would say, in fact, this is a quote of uh, Brigham Young, um, for, by grace we have saved, we, for by grace we are saved through faith insofar as it goes. That's how Brigham Young uh, transformed the, the statement of Ephesians 2, 8. And... Insofar as it goes, if you talk to any given Mormon, they usually will tell you it's anywhere from, you know, 2 to 10% uh, that I contribute to my salvation. We're good with God doing most of it, with Christ doing most of it, but we still want a little bit from ourselves. Mm -hmm. We still want to contribute that little bit. And, of course, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 excludes it completely, that no one may boast. We have no room for boasting. There is nothing that we bring to the table. Uh, but I, I think it's a compulsion, uh, I would say, of perhaps our sinful nature, our pride, uh, that we think, no, I, I really can do something. 
I really, there's, there's got to be that little bit that I bring to the table. I'm, I'm, I am that good. Pastor Brian, let me just repeat the question. The impulse to contribute to our salvation, how does that still affect the church today? Yeah, as uh, Gail was just saying that, I thought, well, that says it. The other way you can say it, just to make the same point, his com last comment was that I am that good. Just turn that around. Um, for some of us, maybe the other is more uh, acceptable to say, but I'm, or I'm not that bad. So the, you know, the doctrine of total depravity, which does not mean, scripturally, does not mean that every lost person is as bad as he could possibly be. That's not true. You know nice, unsaved people. Not every unsaved person, you know, is a Hitler or mass murderer or whatever. That's not what do total depravity says. Total depravity says we are as bad off as we could possibly be because Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. And there aren't degrees of dead. If you're dead, you're dead. There are degrees of decay, but not degrees of dead. So just our in, inherent in human nature is this resistance of the doctrine of total depravity, that I am dead in sin, and I can do nothing. And I am that bad off, but we, we, don't, we don't want to accept that. I'm not really that bad because we think if we accept total depravity, we have to say, well, then we, we did, we've done the exact same thing as a Hitler which is confusing the point. <clears throat> We've talked about <clears throat> what comes to your mind when you think about the Reformation, the greatest achievement, what can we learn as a contemporary church, what can we learn from the Reformers. We've talked about justification a little bit and our, and our impulse, that innate impulse to want to contribute to our salvation. <clears throat> Let me ask this question. Do you, do you think that there is ever a happy place or a sweet spot where the church can be content with itself, that we, and I don't, I don't mean to um, uh, use the, the, the word church in a different way here, but in our own maybe local churches, that we can look at our church and just think, this is, this is it, baby. Um, the, we've arrived. You know, we don't have to be worried about our church because we're, we're in the zone. Um, do, is that possible to get there, or do churches always need to be looking for ways to reform? Just as I watch you talk, Danny, I, I was thinking to myself, you're really good at this. At what? At, at talk show fantasy camp. Maybe. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you're really good at this. Thank you. And thank you for putting this together. This, yeah. is, this is fabulous. Is there ever a sweet spot? Um, I'm going to change your question just a little bit. Should there ever be a sweet spot uh, where we think we've got it all together? And my answer would be, as long as the church exists in history, no. There will not be, nor should there be. Uh, in other words, we are constantly going to be wrestling, and, and I'm convinced, it's those of you who've heard my definition of time before, that time is a gift, not a burden, uh, that I'm convinced that it's God's blessing as such, because we are forced to live in history, which means we are forced to constantly try to balance what we believe to be the ideal that we see in Scripture and what we see as the reality around us. Mm. We're forced to wrestle with what does Scripture say and what is it that I'm doing or we're doing as mm. church and who we are as church. That's a, I see that as a gift. 
really. It's not a burden to wrestle with that. It's a gift because as it progresses, I'm convinced that's, that's the moment of glory where people see us wrestling with that, doing good works, and, and they give honor to our Father who's in heaven. They see us working that out day by day, and that's really what Paul commanded the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why? Because you shine as lights in the world among a crooked and perverse generation. It's, it's that constant working. So if we ever reach a sweet spot, be afraid. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think, I think it, it would be, uh, I, I've, I've read authors who've said, we've arrived, uh, and none of them had. Anything to add, Pastor Brian? Well, I just think that it's significant that in the book of Revelation, Jesus recorded seven letters to seven churches in ancient Asia Minor, and every one of those ends with the phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is what Jesus wants the church to hear, and it's uh, interesting to note that of the seven, only two didn't receive a rebuke. Five did. Five received a rebuke for things they were doing or not doing, which, again, just ought to show that he left those inspired messages in Scripture as a reminder. You, always, you, you have to always be on guard and always evaluating. Mm. So considering that the, the way that we've answered that, that churches should be looking for ways to reform, Gail, what do, you, what do you see as the two biggest issues that you believe the church needs to reform today? Different issues or same issues? Um, you could do... Either one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I would say same issue to begin with, uh, that, that grace alone is something that we probably cannot stress enough, uh, that we do not add anything to our salvation, that that the the term alone has to be maintained and has to be emphasized. Uh, we, we still want to either take credit or feel good about ourselves or, or try to add to. And I'm not convinced that's as much a doctrinal issue as it is a human issue. Uh, so as a consequence, I would say that that's, that's an issue that was true for the reformers, is still true for us as church today. Uh, liberalism would attest to that, that really we're not that bad, uh, mm. as Brian said earlier. It, mm. it, and I think, no, we need to constantly maintain. And of course, grace alone, the implication being that sin permeates our being. Uh, as he said, not in an intensive sense, but in an extensive sense. It permeates our being. So we have to start with the fact that there is a need, uh, and that need hasn't changed throughout human history. And the response, the reaction, the resolution to that need, the solution is grace. Pastor Brian, as you look at the church landscape in the United States, what would you say the two biggest issues are that the church needs to reform? Um, I think that the, <clears throat> in all honesty, the reformers didn't go far enough. They did a great work, but um, I think there are still areas that need to be reformed. More specifically, as I look at the church as a whole, I think ecclesiology and eschatology were issues that, and I understand this, the reformers had other, bigger fish to fry, right? They had a lot more issues like sola scriptura and sola fide, so I don't, I don't fault them for that. Uh, but I personally think as I look at the landscape of the church as a whole that too, me, too, much, too many churches are still stuck 
on the ecclesiology and eschatology of the reformers without being willing to, what we just talked about in the last question, evaluate and assess it, etc. And so that you have a huge horde of Christians, genuine believers, for example, who've never been baptized. And uh, some could say, well, that's, that's not that significant an event. Well, interestingly, in Luke 7.30, Jesus used a remarkable phrase when he referred to the spiritual leaders of Israel who didn't get baptized by John's baptism. And this was the phrase that Jesus used. They rejected the will of God for themselves. That is strong. They rejected the will of God for themselves, not being baptized by John. And I think we have a whole lot of Christians today because they've embraced all the teachings of the Reformers and, and not gone back to Scripture who haven't been baptized. I think that's a significant issue. And then, of course, I think eschatology is a significant issue. I think the, the, the eschatology of the Reformers was not, they didn't reform enough. And you say, well, is that, is that really anything practical or that big of a deal? Well, just think about the book of Romans. Chapter 8 ends by saying nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Height, nor depth, nor any creative, you know that passage. Nothing, nothing can separate us. And then immediately Paul launches into Romans 9 through 11 that God isn't finished with, uh, with Israel. Now listen, gang, if God is not going to keep his promises to Israel, what weight does Romans 8 carry for you and me? I mean, Romans 9 through 11 follows Romans 8. So how do you know nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? You say, well, because God said it. Yeah, but he said other things to Israel. And if he doesn't keep those to Israel, how is he going to keep those promises to us? So I still think the two biggest areas of reformation that are needed in the church as a whole are ecclesiology and eschatology, uh, because the reformers did a great job, but they stopped there. As, as you two look out and you see our student body, um, all of the wonderful smiling faces, um, and you know that after one year or after four years, or maybe after five or six, um, they will be going out. Um, <laughs> they will be going out uh, back to churches. Uh, some of them will be church leaders. Many of them, uh, many of them will be church leaders, in fact, um, in, in whatever capacity. What is one piece of advice or one piece of counsel to our students regarding the contemporary church and the issues that it faces? What, what, what advice would you give them? Can I start with you, Gil? I would return to uh, 1 Timothy 4. I mentioned earlier Paul's advice to Timothy to be nourished on doctrine, on the words of faith and sound doctrine. And I would continue because there seems to be a connection. He doesn't stop with that and say, okay, as long as you know what's going on, you'll, you'll be all right. As long as you have a sound understanding of doctrine, everything's good, everything's golden. No, he goes on and tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Mm -hmm. Because as you study, you should know sound doctrine. That... that Hopefully you'll spend enough time here that, that won't miss you or pass you by. You should know sound doctrine, but if that doctrine makes no difference in your godliness, then, then we're wasting our time. Mm. So discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness, because really the church is starving for godliness, it seems. Uh, the church has a fair amount of knowledge, it seems, and, and that's where a lot of of our focus has been, uh, much of the focus of, has been in the last few hundred years at least, on, okay, what is a right understanding? 
that needs to be there. That should be there. But if we gain that, uh, as Jesus said, and yet lose your own soul, um, you've gained nothing. So discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. Pastor Brian, one piece of counsel to our students regarding the contemporary church and the issues it faces. Yeah, my, my one piece of advice would be always go back to Scripture. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just continually struck as I read through the Gospels that Jesus so often, repeatedly said things like, it is written, it is written, it is written. I mean, even when he was tempted by Satan, he didn't say, who do you think you are? I'm the Son of God. You're, it is written, it is written. Have you not read? Have you not read? In other words, do you read your Bible? Go back to Scripture. And for all of us, that's just a continual challenge. Do, do we believe what we believe? Do we do what we do? Do we practice what we practice? Because it is in Scripture. So always go back to Scripture. <clears throat> that was a fast 50 minutes. Um, how about you guys? How about us? The Reformation happened 500 years ago. As you think about your own life, you think about the pivotal, beautiful place where you're at in your life right now. In what ways do you need to be reforming yourself? What direction are you going? Who do you follow?